This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, welcome back. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Greg Carr, we're in class with Carr. Uh, thank you for joining me again. Subscribe to this channel. If you are fed by this, you like what you're hearing, give us the like, the thumbs up as well. Today, you said you're going to surprise me with somebody. We're going to have uh, every week on Saturday, we're going to have these conversations about a historical figure because people need to know. There's some issue y'all should know, and Dr. Greg Carr knows it. All right, so who's this woman that you're going to tell us about today, and why am I going to be surprised? Well, Karen, as you know, we've been talking about this, and folks who are watching this know that over the arc now, uh, and as we build this momentum, we see this sister sitting at the nexus of technology and education, this, this teacher, this professor, this uh, media kind of platform builder and international figure, Karen Hunter, who oh, is I helping like, people. Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm talking about okay. like, who, who are you talking about? Oh, no, 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 absolutely. But, but I mean that very seriously because what you're doing, you know, there's a lot of scholarship now in, uh, in, in, in academia. They, talk, they, they like to talk about curation. How do we curate? Well, you know, we know, usually we think about curators, we think about museums. How do people put things together? Well, the only reason to go to a museum is to look at stuff and think about things you may have thought, never thought about before. Well, you're curating. This platform, you use it to curate. Let me put things together and then have you look at them and think and engage them back and forth. So I was thinking, this would be a perfect opportunity to talk about one sister who was a curator, but not only was a curator, but represents generations of black women who did this kind of work. Some black men too, but I love the idea that these were black women who did this. The sister I want to talk about today was born in Virginia uh, in 1905, but she actually uh, grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. Oh. She was actually baptized in East Orange. So that's your homie. Okay, all right. I love it. I love it. <laughs> the great, yes, Jersey girl. The great. I, I was just trying to tell somebody the other day that everybody should move to Jersey. Listen. Jersey, not New Jersey, just Jersey. Where Jersey. Jersey, completely different. <laughs> well, her, her father felt the same way. In fact, her name is Dorothy Burnett Porter Wesley. Uh, wow, Dorothy it's a lot Burnett of names. Yes, yeah, a lot. Well, she got married a lot. Well, she got married twice, and it's interesting okay. who she married. Oh, it's fascinating. Dorothy, she was born Dorothy Burnett, as I said, in, in Virginia, and uh, Warrentown, Virginia. Her father was a physician. Her father um, was a, a physician, Joseph Burnett Sr. He uh, was the first doctor of African descent in Montclair. And uh, his, uh, his wife, her mother, uh, Bertha, was, uh, you know, it's difficult because when you call somebody a homemaker, you know, like that's, I mean, that's a job. <laughs> a full-time job, a full-time full -time job, job yes. know, right? So she, Bertha actually, you know, raised the family, but she was also, this is crazy, she was also a tennis uh, whiz. In fact, she was part of the Black Tennis Association. She started, I think it was the Oriole Group, was the group they had in Montclair. She was good enough as a tennis player to rise to, I think, the highest ranking she ever had in, in Black tennis, or Negro tennis, as they would call it at the time, was like third in the country. She's played doubles with a sister named Lucy Diggs Slow. We know Venus and Serena Williams. The young people who know Venus and Serena probably don't know the names, other names we know, like Zena Garrison, for example. Laurie McNeil. And then Althea Gibson. <laughs> Althea Gibson, the great. Who died no in question. East Orange, who lived in East Orange for 40 plus years. Another Jersey sis, no question, coming out of South, no question. 
And before Althea Gibson, there was Lucy Diggs Slow, who was the Negro women's tennis champion in the country. And in fact, Lucy Diggs Slow became the dean of women at Howard University. And uh, when she passed away, she, she was the dean of women, but she was the tennis professor, the, 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 the greatest black tennis player in the country before she became the dean of women at Howard. And one of her doubles partners was Bertha Bar uh, Barnett, who was the mother of Dorothy Porter. So Dorothy and her siblings were raised, at, raised right there in Montclair. Uh, her father was a bibliophile. He collected books. He ran for office in Montclair. Fascinating figure on his own. But Dorothy and her siblings grew up reading books. Many of the first black books that Dorothy got were in the family home. She talks about Paul Lawrence Dunbar and so many other people that she read about. So Dorothy and her siblings, you know, as they, they looked at these books in their father's library and their father had a great library. And so she read Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, uh, Iola Leroy. It's one of the first novels written by a woman of African descent in this country. So Dorothy Porter grew up reading books. Well, she went to school, graduated from Montclair High School, uh, one of a very few black students at the time. And then she went to Washington, D.C. She went to Miners Teachers College. Miners Teacher College was a school, uh, the building now is actually on the campus of Howard University, uh, the Miners Teachers College. It was founded for teaching black women, uh, 1851, Matilda Miner goes back to. Uh, Miners Teacher College doesn't exist today in its past form. It is 16 years older, no, 16, 17 years older than Howard University. Wow. Uh, but it merged along with several other schools. And so now the former Miners Teachers College, which is the place they used to train the black school teachers in D.C. In fact, if you go around the country, uh, places like Cheney, for example, places like Winston-Salem State, this is where the black school teachers in North Carolina or Pennsylvania were trained. Miner was the one for D.C. It is now known, along with the other schools, it merged together as the University of the District of Columbia. A lot of people don't realize that there is another HBCU in Washington, D.C. It's a public HBCU, and it's called the University of the District of Columbia. Yeah. One of the schools that became UDC was Miners Teachers College, and that's where Dorothy Porter went to school. Uh, she, that she encountered there uh, librarians. It was one sister named Lula Allen was one of the early librarians in the country. Or trained as a librarian, and she was the librarian at Howard University for years, and then she took over at, uh, at, at Minor Teachers College. Dorothy Porter loved books. She loved the idea of working in libraries, and she worked with Lula Allen, and in the summertime, they would go to East Coast. They would come to New York and work at the 135th Street uh, Division of the New York Public Library. That was known as the Negro Division. And we know, of course, that the Negro Division of the New York Public Library was started by that great Black Puerto Rican, that Blake Bariqua Arturo Schomburg. That's right. Schomburg. Schomburg. Yes. No question. And when Dorothy Porter actually was working as a student with uh, Alan at the Schomburg, what wasn't the Schomburg then? No, the Schomburg was still alive. <laughs> there was another lady named Ernestine Rose, who was a white woman who was working there as the branch librarian. But and here's a very important for people to understand. Arturo Schomburg was not a librarian. He was a book collector. And wow. so, you know, and it's important for us to have trained librarians, please. And if some of y'all thinking about libraries, librarian work as a job, please, please, we need more librarians. And school librarians, my head is off. I'm sure you have. Some, you. I mean, 
some of the most brilliant minds in the world are librarians. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is the thing, academics like to say, oh, I'm a scholar, I'm a scholar. You rarely hear librarians say they're scholars, but trust me, every preface to every academic book that's written, you see the acknowledgments, who are they thinking? The librarian. Librarian, yes. That's very important, because when you know the books, the rest of it, you can get. But the books, you gotta know where the sources are. It's very important to understand. So anyway, let me, let me speed this up, because there's another cat working there in the summer times too, who is also working at Howard. He becomes the librarian for the university. His name is Edward Williams, Edward Christopher Williams. He's gonna become important in a minute. So here you have young Dorothy uh, Burnett working at this place. And she then gets her degree from Minor Teachers College. And she decides that she's gonna continue going to school. She's at Columbia. And then she goes in to get her bachelor's degree at Howard University. Comes back to DC, gets this degree. As she's getting this degree, she's working in the university library. She's working with this dude, Edward Christopher Williams. Edward Williams, who was the, the chief librarian at Howard University, Edward Williams was in line to become the first black person to get a PhD in library science from Columbia. But he was laid low by disease and he died. But before he died, Dorothy Porter got her degree from Howard and her Jedna, her mentor at uh, Minor Teacher College my, uh, was like, um, you know, Sister Allen, she was like, Dorothy, why don't you come work in the library here? And now, they, now, they're, now they're back in New York. They're working when she gets this offer. And she tells Williams, yeah, I've been, you know, they want me to come to, uh, to Minor and take over the library. So Williams is like, well, I want you to come to Howard and take over the library. And she said, well, I don't have an offer from Howard. And she said, he said, you have one now. So Dorothy Porter becomes, I'm sorry, Dorothy Burnett becomes a librarian at Howard University. She gets the Porter in her name because a guy she met while uh, he was in New York doing some work, an artist and an art scholar who also went to Howard at the same time as her, they fell in love. His name is James A. Porter. James A. Porter is one of the most important early art historians and artists in the 20th century. He wrote a book called uh, American Negro Art, among many other things. James Porter became the curator of the art collection at Howard University. And so now it's Dorothy Burnett Porter. Now, she kept the Burnett? Oh, no, yeah, no question. <laughs> you know, just like we talked about when we talked about Ida Bell Wells, you know, sisters ain't giving up no name. Black women gonna name themselves. Now, <laughs> you know, in this day and age, uh, Porter, if he wanted her to have that last name, might be met with, no, my professional name, I'm known as Dorothy uh, Burnett. So we can be married, but I'm gonna keep the Burnett. In other words, you know, black women, you know, this, this, is, this is the tradition. So Dorothy Porter now becomes, Dorothy Burnett Porter becomes the librarian at Howard. And she comes to Howard University and over the course of over 40 years, about 43 years, she builds one of the most, in fact, arguably, along with the Schomburg, the most important collection of Black books in the world. Because while she comes into the university at a time when they have acquired a small collection, well, a large collection at the time, about 3,000 books on Black stuff by a guy who's the head of the colored or the Black YMCA, uh, Black, um, yeah, Young Men's Christian Association, YMCA, uh, named Jesse Moreland. Jesse Moreland was friends with a dude named Kelly Miller and some others. Kelly Miller was a dean at Howard University who said, 
if it's going to be a black collection of books, if we're going to curate black artifacts, if we're going to have a black museum, it should be at Howard University. This should be the place to study black from all over the world. And that was his dream. He never achieved it. I mean, I should pause here and say that he wasn't even the first. George Washington Williams in the 19th century said, we should have a great Negro building. We should have a great Negro museum. And let's stick it across the street from Howard University. So when people are thinking, oh, look at the National Museum of African American Art and History, what you think that's the first time black people said we should curate a museum? No, it goes back to the Civil War, right after the Civil War, because George Washington Williams was a veteran of the Civil War. He's like, the black soldiers, in fact, said that. But anyway, so... No, not uh, anyway. Let's, let's, let's suss that out for a second, because I think... You know, and I'm, I've been guilty of this too. You think about people in bondage very monolithically. You think about them as being downtrodden, people who are beaten, they, they had to get up from sunup, work till sundown, short lifespan. Sure, they were families, they didn't own themselves. You know, we've had a Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. I mean, you got some heroes. But the notion to have the wherewithal to run for office, govern, right after, right after bondage, right? Right. Museums, art, you know, so it wasn't just field, slaves, da, da da da. There was an imagination even in the midst of this horror called slavery that took place for those several centuries, right? Absolutely. That that's something Absolutely. to ponder. It know? really is something. It really I mean, there's no such thing. You were talking about education, uh, you know, uh, a good friend of mine, an elder, uh Iaola Day, who was a middle school teacher for decades in uh, Philadelphia. She and her sister uh, started the Yoruba New Year Festival in Philadelphia called Odunde. So people know about Odunde in Philly. It was Lois and Laura Fernandez who started that. And, uh, uh, Laura Fernandez, um, Lois Fernandez, Iaola Day in the Ifa tradition. She was a middle school teacher and she used to say, she said, I would go home sometime with children and I would look at the circumstances under which they were trying to study and they would say, I don't have a place to study, uh, Ms. Lois, I don't have a place to study. And she said, I would come in the house, I would secure a guarantee from the parents that they would let this child have a little time of quiet, turn off the TV, y'all go somewhere else, let her study. And then she would say, but I still don't have a place. She said, show me your kitchen table. And it'd be all kind of stuff all over the table. And she says, I would put my hands down in the middle of the stuff till I reach the table, and I would just go like this. And I would say, that's your desk. <laughs> right there. My, my point is to the point you're raising. Even when you're getting whipped, even when you're picking cotton or chopping tobacco or sugar cane, there's that moment when you look up at the sky and see the cloud. And in that moment, you done cleared out that mental space. Our people never lost their imagination. They never lost the dream. So people say, oh, how did they do it? They did it. How do we know they did it? Because we're here talking about it. Meaning what? If they had lost their imagination, we wouldn't be here. And that's really important to understand. Now, in fact, I should have it here because I keep a lot of them close. This. Yeah, here. <laughs> this is a. I, I mean, this this is a small part. I mean, I got books everywhere, but that's just the yes, one we know. See. <laughs> this is my man, Robert Wilkins. Robert Wilkins is a judge. He wrote a book. He was on the commission to get the museum. This is his book, Long Road to Hard Truth. In this book, Judge Wilkins. Here he is right here. I'll show you his picture so you can see. It's Judge Robert Wilkins right there. Okay. Robert Wilkins, hey, judge. right? He's a judge. He's a um, judge in the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Served as chairman of the Site and Building Commission of the Presidential Commission that Congress established to plan the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So he wrote a book that details what we're talking about. He said these brothers came back from the Civil War. Now, of course, Harriet Tubman's still alive. 
Freddie Douglas still alive. So General Truth still alive. So during this period, these brothers came back and said, we're going to march in the parade. We're in the Grand Army of the Republic. Andrew Johnson becomes the president. He talking all kind of crazy stuff to these brothers. Well, you know, y'all keep your noses clean. They was like, no. So the community in D.C. and then nationally began saying, we should have a place that honors these black soldiers that gave this blood sacrifice. And while we're doing that, the place should also include uh, uh, exhibits on the progress of the Negro in America. And while we're doing that, we should probably have some things in there on the achievements of black people from antiquity to now. So this is not an early conversation. And then George Washington Williams, who was one of these brothers, Washington Williams was like, let's stick it across the street from Howard University. It never got built. But a generation later, Kelly Miller, who was of a generation just a little bit after some of these brothers, like John Mercer Langston, who was the first dean of Howard Law School, who had come out of slavery in Virginia. I mean, the stories are incredible. Kelly Miller, Professor Miller says, we should have a great national Negro museum and library, and it should be at Howard University. Dorothy Porter, Dorothy Burnett Porter, comes to work at Howard as this brother is still alive, still struggling, and she comes on the staff of Howard the same year, 1926, as Howard hires its first black president, a preacher out of West Virginia, well, born in Tennessee, actually, one of my homies, who was preaching, coming out of West Virginia, had a degree from Morehouse and got a master's from Harvard named Mordecai Wyatt Johnson. And Mordecai Johnson, the first black president of Howard, pushes for Howard University to be transformed into this magnet to bring all these black intellectuals, to bring all these black students. And Dorothy Burnett Porter becomes the face of the Negro collection at Howard University. Wow. It becomes the Moreland Foundation, named for Jesse Moreland, because he brought in those first 3,000 books. They then collect other stuff. And then another guy, a white dude uh, named Spingarn, Arthur Spingarn, who was on the, he was a lawyer for the NLACP. He donates his collection and they rename it the Moreland Spingarn Collection. And Dorothy Burnett Porter builds the Moreland Spingarn Collection into the largest, at, with the Schomburg repository of black information in the world. She also, I mean, she revolutionizes everything. In fact, this is my friend, uh, Janet Sims Wood. Janet Sims Wood is a professor who was now, uh, she used to be at Howard University on the Moreland Spingarn Collection. That's Miss Porter right there, except you see she's got Wesley on it. This is her book on Dorothy Port, uh, Porter, Dorothy Burnett Porter uh, Wesley. This sister, her importance cannot be overstated. Let me do a couple of things so you just, so just get a sense, and we won't go too deep into her life. This is a book I would encourage everybody to get. Uh, Dr. Sims Wood is still alive, uh, still teaching. She doesn't teach at Howard anymore. She usually teaches. Actually, Janet Sims Wood is one of the most important black women librarians, bibliographies uh, in, his, in history. She's done so many bibliographies on Paul Robeson and Marcus Garvey and so many others. She worked at the Moreland Spingarn. She knew Miss Porter. She used to go over Miss Porter's house. In fact, wow. Dorothy Porter West, she said, I would go over Miss Porter's house sometime. And her friend would be down from New York, Jean Blackwell Hudson. Jean Hudson was the librarian at the Schomburg. She said, I would sit there with these sisters. This is Man. very important for all of us, but especially black women. These are the women. So when you see the academics writing these books and they talking about my book and my, re no, it was these black women who had the books, who built the collections. And she said, I would sit there and Miss Porter would be there talking. Miss Porter would cook the meal. She's a great cook. And here come, you know, Jean Blackwell Houston. And I would listen to these elders 
Now, mind you, this is a hilarious story. It's a New York story, in fact. Gene Hewson was a professional librarian who was hired at Schomburg. And Arthur Schomburg, as I said, was not a librarian, but he had all the books. So he had collected the books. One day, the staff had organized his books on the Dewey Decimal System. Dewey came out of Columbia Library School as well. Ms. Porter brushed shoulders with all those people at Columbia. Mr. Schomburg came in to work couldn't find anything in his collection. Why? Because he had organized the Baltimore books. So, but the librarians had come in and reorganized everything according to the library system because they're librarians. Schauberg was like, you're fired. <laughs> so he's like, I can't find anything. So, but, it's, but he, eventually everybody got rehired. But the interesting thing about <laughs> it is these black women were the first generation of trained librarians who came in because Dorothy Porter created a different system for organizing black libraries. She says, uh, this is somebody writing about her. Because when we, when we came along, they had the Dewey Decimal System, right? You, you, add, you go to the library, or you go on the internet, you look for a book, you gotta look for the like DT or E185.615, that's like African-American or Africa. You know, you, know, you know the letters, right. you know the numbers. All right, somebody says about a Dorothy Porter. Under the system, everything related to the Negro was classified under the number 325. Which was under which was the number for colonization or three two six? Wow, wait, back up, back up, back up, back up. Yes, the number three. What was the number for colonization? The number was three three two five for colonization. So let me see. No, I'll start wow. looking for books. I'll no, don't do, it, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. We'll uh, be in a so rabbit here, hole. So, right. All right. Three two five is colonization, and three two six was what? Three two six was slavery. Wow. But, and this is and that's right through because, a white lens, right? Yes. Through a white lens. That's how they see us. That's right. Curating. I'll never forget. <sighs> uh, this was back, and this is a name I'm sure you know and a lot of people. Why? Remember uh, Dr. Fulani, Lenora Fulani. Of course. She ran for president back in the day, right? I remember Lenora Fulani one time. I think she was on Donahue's show. She said, black people have, they've tried to reduce black people to footnotes in white history. I would never forget that. So when we started talking about, oh, yes, we were Americans too. Wait, slow down, slow down. Why are you reducing us to footnotes in white history? This classification system is a way to curate blackness under subject headings that are a white lens. Exactly right. It's intellectual warfare. So what does Ms. Porter do? She says, or the lady keeps saying, she says, the woman in charge of the Dewey Decimal Classification at Howard could not see why I didn't want to put a book of poetry by James Weldon Johnson under 325 or 326. So this is actually Ms. Porter. Ms. Porter saying, the librarian in charge of Dewey Decimal for us couldn't see why I didn't want to put James Weldon Johnson under one of these two numbers. What, I got to put James Weldon Johnson under colonization or slavery? Hold on. She says, which was ridiculous. Here's what Ms. Porter said. She says, I just began to base everything about black literature and history wherever it fell in the regular Dewey Decimal classification. If it were a book on blacks in the Revolutionary War, it would go under the same number as Revolutionary War, for example. It was very simple, you see, very simple. She was low key with it, but she said, wait a minute, you talking about blacks and uh, bacon bread? No problem, what's the Dewey Decimal for bacon bread? bread oh, that's right. such and such, put right. it there. <laughs> Except she had all the black books in one place. So what do you do? You go into Moreland Spangarn, you see all the books, and then you take the Dewey Decimal, and when you go in the rest of the collection, you can see how it fits with everything in world memory. She was not, and some people say, oh, well, that, make, that means she made a black ghetto. 
you better stop listening to this white lens. She has now reimagined black life so that we are the subject in all these areas, not put us in one place. It's very important. A couple of things that we're going, I want to, um, I want to read a quote from somebody else who I think you'll really love this. Dorothy Porter traveled the world. In fact, uh, let me just pause here to mention some people who came before uh, Dorothy Porter and Lula Allen and some of those people in the early 20th century. These were the great black women librarians at the black colleges. None greater than the great Hallie Quinn Brown at Wilberforce. She's buried just outside of Wilberforce. I've been to her gravesite many times, pay respect. Hallie Quinn Brown was this champion speaker. She was a tall, stately woman who was known for incredible oratory and brilliant intellectual work. In fact, you had to see, look, at, look her up and see a picture of her. You'd be like, I know that sister right there. That's my great grandma. <laughs> Hallie Quinn Brown was a bad sister. She was the librarian at Wilberforce. Oh man, she's a bad sister. So anyway, these are the sisters who came before even these libraries. And there have been other men like E.J. Josie and many others, as I mentioned, Edward Christopher Williams and others, but women. And when you go into the Tuskegee collection, when you go into World Before, you see these black women who we don't see them celebrating, we don't see them lifted up, but Dorothy Porter, she becomes the kind of uh, queen mother of this generation. And then the women who came after her, my friend Karen Jefferson, who was there for years at Moreland Spingarn, who ended up at Atlanta University running the Woodruff Library System, Janet Sim Wood, a number of people. Another brother who worked at Moreland Spingarn after Miss Porter retired, but who knew one of her lieutenants, um, Eleanor DeVerney Sinet. Eleanor Sinet and her, and, her, and her husband, Dr. Calvin Sinet, were friends with Malcolm X. Eleanor Sinet worked at Moreland Spingarn. One of her young protégés was a young brother who used to work at Moreland Spingarn and then started selling books on the campus of Howard University off a table. We know his son, Tyna Hesse, but I'm talking about the father, Paul Coates. Paul Coates worked at wow. the Moreland Spingarn collection. Yeah, possibly my man. Dorothy Porter, is a, he's, like, he's like a grandson of hers. But at any rate, let me just read you this quote. I think you'll love this, Ken. Because she's traveling around the world. She's helping set up libraries in, uh, libraries in Nigeria. She's collecting books all over. Uh, one of the sisters called her the bag lady who used to work there. Eshmi Bond, who worked in Moreland Spingarn, called her because she would take bags and just get stuff out of everywhere, right? So here, Yvonne Siam, founding director of the Bollinger Black Cultural Resources Center at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, met Dorothy Porter in 1966 when they were both in Dakar, Senegal, attending the first World Festival of Black Arts. And they remained friends until Porter's death. In her June 21st, 2014 email to the author, so Dr. Sims Woods writes Dr. Sion. Sion recalled, quote, I met Dorothy Porter West at the first World Festival of Black and African Arts. She and Dr. James Porter were with the group of people that came over on the plane with a group called the American Society of African Culture. Dr. Jenkins, president of Morgan State College, was also among those on the flight. And then she talks about this, and here's that. She said, when I got back to the States, I would often go to the Moreland Spingarn collection. I remember going up to look up Bishop William David Chappelle after I married his grandson. She helped me locate a book he had written about his life, which included some, ser some sermons. And then she talks about the name that she went to look for William David Chappelle, Bishop L, was the name of the grandfather of the grandson, Dr. Sion married. They had a child, the last name. Chappelle. We know that last name, right? Dave. This is David Chappelle's mother, Dr. Yvonne Sion, another one of those wow. curators. Great culture. If you saw uh, when he got the Mark Twain Prize a few months ago and he's at the Kennedy Center, Dave Chappelle tells a story. His mother is still alive and she's there and he's African, in this African dress. And he says, my mother taught me to be a griot. 
My mother said, you got to tell the story in a way to bring people in. Dave Chappelle was brought into an African storytelling tradition by his mother, who was friends with Dorothy Porter Wesley, and then went looking for Dave Chappelle's grandfather, who was a bishop. In fact, Dave Chappelle just gave some money to Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina, because so Bishop Chappelle came That's out my of daddy's it. alma mater. That's my father's alma what? mater. Yes. You see how these, see? We, we Who this is weird. Yes. It, I'm the answer if my father didn't go to that church, I would I mean to that school, Alan, I would not be here because that's where he met my my uncle who introduced my father to his sister, my mother. And uh because he's from Newark. So yes. He, yeah, he landed in South Carolina because he couldn't go to Seton Hall. Wow. Well, thank yeah. God that he didn't go to Seton Hall. Thank God they yeah. didn't let him go. Because we wouldn't be on this conversation. <laughs> thank God. And and his his cousin was the music director of the choir because Alan had one of the greatest choirs in the country. Oh, no question. Yeah, no John question. Hunter is my is my cousin. Anyway, you so yeah, there you kidding. go. No, 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 that's not anyway. The aunt, look, everybody watching, ancestors don't make no mistake. Our people built institutions. And if it weren't for these institutions, we wouldn't be here. So this isn't the story of heroic black individuals. It's the story of heroic black individuals who were produced by heroic black institutions. So don't look at a black person as if in fact, I love the way that Anna Julia Cooper used to say it, uh, as Paula Giddings made the title of her book, When and Where I Enter, the Race Enters With Me. So when you see these Black women, you're looking at the race. It's very important. So, so to kind of wind it up, she did a number of things. She trained students. In fact, I pulled out, I got a lot of Dorothy Porter stuff. She, wrote, she did, edited a lot of books. Um, in fact, there was a time, if you wrote a book on something Black in America, you probably thanked her in uh, the the uh, the acknowledgments. I wish I could find it now. I would. Oh yeah, here we go. White scholar in the black community, August Meyer, who was considered one of the godfathers of African American history, which is hilarious to me. Although August right. Meyer is very he's very light skinned. No, no, he's white. He, he's so light skinned he black. <laughs> in fact, he was a member of the Newark chapter of the NAACP. Hilarious. This actually, this is actually a copy of his book that is signed to Richard Thornwell, who was the uh, who was at Howard University Law School for a number of years. But at any rate, Augie Meyer wrote his dissertation because he came to DC and Dorothy Porter Wesley led him by the hand through the stacks of the Morland Spangar collection. And he wrote a dissertation, two volumes, that became his book, Negro Thought in America, 1880 to 1915, which then launched him as this expert in African-American history. But she knew everybody. And by everybody, I mean Carter Woodson. I mean, Arturo Schomburg. I mean, John Hope Franklin, who was on faculty at Howard when she was there. She is the one who gave them the resources necessary to do their work. She put together um, uh, bibliographies. This is a catalog of the African collection at Moreland Spingarn. Everything they had on Africa. This was published in 1958 when they were putting the African Studies Program together. Uh, her collection, oh, I should, I should include this as we wind to a close. Her husband, James may transition in 1970. Well, Miss Porter is a G. I guess she don't like living by herself because her second husband was the great Charles Harris Wesley. Charles Harris Wesley was Carter G. Woodson's man. Wesley was the president of Wilberforce College, then Central State University. He was the founding director of the African American Museum in Philadelphia, started in 1976. Uh, he wrote the history of many black social organizations. He was an alpha. He wrote the history of the alphas. Prince Hall Masons wrote the history of the Prince Hall Masons, wrote the history of the Elks, wrote the history of Sigma Pi Phi, the Boulay. He was the guy, wrote a, wrote a history of Richard Allen, 
Word. I mean, wow. just did a whole lot of other things. AME Church. He was a minister in AME Church. And Miss Porter was like, okay, you come with me. And she married. <laughs> can, you imagine their, can you imagine their dinner conversations? Woo! Listen, not only that, Miss Porter was known to never throw anything away. She had her collection, which means her father's collection. She had James Porter's collection, which was incredible in terms of art, art history, and everything. And then she got Charles Harris Wesley's collection. So not only the rich conversations of all the people, she's got all this stuff. Her daughter, Connie, because Miss Porter passed in 1995, Connie inherited everything. And this is where the thing gets a little complicated for me. Um, and I should pause here to say that, um, in fact, the Moreland Spingarn Collection has had published one history of Moreland Spingarn called Legacy, mm. Treasures of Black History. This book is very special to me because I have a piece in this book. A piece I wrote, I, they, 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 they let me, they, they asked me to write the little piece on the slave trade. And I was like, are you kidding? Because the preface is written by John Ho Franklin. The wow. afterwards by Charles Bloxon, the great collector out of Philadelphia. Everybody in here from Jeffrey Stewart, who just won the National Book Award for writing his book on Elaine Locke, to Ron Walters, the man who was Jesse Jackson's intellect in terms of his campaigns in 1984 and 88. There's so many Spencer Crew, who's now the museum director at the National Museum of African History and Culture. I had been at Howard like two years. They was like, bro, do you want to write this? I said, are you kidding? I will be honored. So this is the book on the collection she built. But the reason I'm raising it is because Charles Bloxon, who is the collector out of Philadelphia, I used to work for Mr. Bloxon. Charlie Bloxon, when I was in graduate school, said, hey, man, I'm going down to D.C. to go to the uh, Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History uh, luncheon, their annual Black History Month kickoff luncheon. You want to go? I said, yeah, I'm going. Come on, let's go. We get in the car. They used to call Mr. Bloxon the second Schomburg because he's a collector too. So we talk books all the time. We leave Philly. We get to D.C. We come into the student center at Howard University, go up to the second floor. He said, I want to introduce you to somebody. And there sitting is Dorothy Porter Wesley. <laughs> I was like, it's Dorothy Porter Wesley. I cannot believe it. She was sitting there with her daughter, Connie. And I got a chance to, you know, and you know how we are, protocol. You, when an elder is sitting, you get on your knee. You never stand up over an elder. I, 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 I bent down on my knee and got a chance to spend some time just listening to Dorothy Porter Wesley and holding her hand and listening to her tell stories. And I will never forget that because this is one of the great women, great people of the 20th century. And, I, and I'll end with this. After she passed, her daughter, Connie, she had moved to Florida by then. She uh, had the collection and she put on an exhibit and they did an exhibition catalog. It's called Dorothy Porter Wesley. Dorothy Porter Wesley, 1905 to 1995, Afro-American librarian and bibliophile. She, this is the collection. Wow. The collection no longer exists in Connie's hands because it was auctioned, Swan Auction Gallery. Harvard tried to buy the whole thing, but they said, we're going through it. There's some duplicates here. No, 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 no. This is the importance of black institutions. It didn't go to Howard. It didn't go to a black institution. It was put up for auction and it went three different places. One of them black, thank God. Dorothy Porter Wesley stuff is at Yale. It's now in the James Weldon Johnson collection at Beinecke Library. I'm glad it's together, but my God, could it not be Spelman? Could it not be Morehouse? Could it not be Howard? The second collection, the second part, the Porter's collection was acquired by Emory University. That's been, in fact, I got Emory's catalog over here now, Randy Burkett, I know him well. Um, 
they've been buying stuff. You know, Emory University's Coca-Cola money. They got a blank checkbook. They've been going around buying black stuff. They've got Carter G. Woodson's personal library, W.C. Handy's stuff. They have uh, the Hatch Bill. So if our stuff isn't money. valuable, Dr. Gray, it's invaluable. If see, our stuff, no, they said it's not valuable. Well, they said when Dorothy Porter was We're not valuable. They figured out. Now, now, now they've figured it out, and now they opening their checkbooks. And I'm glad it's together, and it's been a lot of good work coming out of it. But it's not at black institutions. The only part of Dorothy Burnett Porter Wesley's collection that is still in the hands of black people in terms of black institution is Charles Harris Wesley's collection, because Charles Harris Wesley had also been at one time the president of Alpha Phi Alpha, and the Alphas were able to buy the collection out of auction. And so the Wesley papers wow. being processed at Howard are with the alphas. But while she was alive, if it was somebody black that, that, that had something, she would make sure, this is Glenn Carrington. He collected books as well. She got him to give his collection to Howard. And this is the Glenn Carrington uh, collection catalog that they published. Dorothy Porter Wesley represents what it means to curate. And that means that if you're going to library science school now, if you're thinking about being a librarian, we need you now more than ever. Because as Karen and I have these conversations and Karen is talking to these people every day on the air, now YouTube and everywhere else, when you hear the name of a book, you want to be able to go to a place, not only where you can get the book, but you want to go to an institution where somebody is there like a Dorothy Porter and say, I know you came asking about this book, but here are what five other this? books. Right. And here's a video. Because the important thing about a librarian is it's not just a woman or a man who knows where the books are. It's a woman or a man who knows how they connect. And that's why, Karen, when you're talking about building platform and making connections, one of the things you do beautifully, making connections, the value added to information is how those things connect. And people like Dorothy Porter Wesley show us how to do that. Well, let me thank you. Um, oh, my goodness. Do I, is there enough time in life to read all of these things? Is there enough time in life to digest everything? Well, I just thank you because uh, I'm never going to be bored. I'm never going to be bored. I appreciate you. Dr. Gray Carr, follow him on Twitter, Africana Carr, C-A-R-R-A, Africana Carr. Old school. Yes, that's right. R-R-R-A. And I want to thank you. Subscribe to this channel. Hit the like button because we should be liked. And Loved. Yes, love. Stay tuned for the next one. Thank you, Dr. Carr. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, President. Thank you, Kim.